in our spiritual life. And um, I want to remind you of what we did last time we were together on this. We did a pretty good dive on first, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter, no, first and only Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. 22, 23, what is the fruit of the Spirit? We did some comparisons. We said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And we compared that to what, what Peter does in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 uh, and verse 5 where he lists some of the same qualities and says you are supposed to supply these things. We said there's an interesting theology that, that is developing between some of these statements, there's no contradiction, but you're getting a picture in the composite of the Christian spiritual life. The Holy Spirit bears this fruit in us as we walk by the Spirit, according to the Word of God, but we're supposed to choose it in Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, I think I might have a slide for you to put it up on the screen. That, they think we call that uh, correlation um, 4. We choose it. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. That's an imperative. That's a command. That's you choose to do it. There's no command issued in Scripture, beginning in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that is not within a context of saying, as you trust in God, step out in faith in obeying God. All commands of Scripture including the Mosaic Law, are meant for people that are trusting him. This is something that, that needs to be stated again and again and again. Because what we'll do is take God's commands plus our arrogance and our sin, and we'll end up with legalism. And that's not what I mean ever when we're talking about God's commands. We're talking about the responsibilities he's placed on us. Because you have the Holy Spirit, you are supposed to bring moral excellence to the table in what you say and do. And in that moral excellence, you're supposed to supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, you're supposed to supply self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Same word, ekratia, in uh, Galatians 5.23. In your self-control, perseverance, which is a synonym to long-suffering or patience. In your perseverance, godliness, good worship toward God. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. The Greek word there is Philadelphia, where you get the name for the town. Brotherly love, the kind of love you have in a household with your brother that's supposed to be filial and affectionate and these kinds of things, kindness. And in your kindness, you're supposed to supply agape, love, which is the first quality listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And what I'm trying to show you is there's a passive sense where it's true that God does this through me, but there's an active responsibility where it's true I'm supposed to choose this. And so you can never say, well, I'm just waiting until the Holy Spirit causes me to love. He, he won't. But if you choose it, he'll empower you to do it. Because it's a partnership by Galatians 5, 23, and uh, 2 Peter 1. And people like to get upset about that. Some theologians get upset about that and say, see, you're, you're, um, you're not allowing God his due to, to, to do all the work that he does through us. And no, it is not something we claim credit for when we love in God's power, but it is something that we're responsible for because we have that power. And we, we line these qualities up, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generous, self-control in Galatians 5, and we compared them with these qualities in Second Peter 1, diligence, excellence, arete, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly love, and love. And we said, 
These really line up pretty tightly, actually. It's interesting that love begins one list, it ends the other, and self-control ends up showing up and long sufferings in the middle. It's pretty tight the way um, the two lists are basically talking about the same thing. Are they not? Are you convinced? I'm convinced these are the same qualities. It's the character of Jesus. Not just that nice guy that you grew up and you knew that, uh, that that's somebody to be like. He never talked bad about anyone. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. His qualities, his character is your model. And you're supposed to have this brought forth in you by the Spirit, but you're also supposed to choose it. And so show up. And what, today I want to talk about a little bit more of the obligation of things that is laid on us, the burden that we carry that Jesus said is a light burden, the yoke that we pull is an easy yoke. In 1 John, if you want to turn to 1 John, I'm going to show you some things about Christian obligation and responsibility that will challenge you. If you read 1 John to be a, a book about whether you're a Christian or not, based on whether you have these qualities, you're going to be confounded to think that Christianity begins with works and that your Christian life is a life of works in order to appease God's wrath or something. That's legalistic and unthinkable, at least for we heirs of the Reformation who believe in sola gratia, sola fide, only grace, only faith. But in 1 John, I believe he establishes the topic is fellowship with God, walking in fellowship with God. And he does it in that great conditional we've already quoted when he says um, in verse 7 of chapter 1, if we walk in the light, as he, that's the Father himself, is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light. It's about fellowship with God. I know it is because he already said in verse 3, what we have seen and what we've, we've heard and what we've seen we, we, and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ. The topic of 1 John is fellowship with God. It's the actual Christian walk. And this confirms something that I believe, the more I read the Scriptures, the more I'm convinced of this, Y'all, the New Testament is not written to unbelievers so that we can believe in Christ. That's not the audience. The New Testament is written to believers who have, by a testimony of another believer, have, have received the gospel, and we can learn better what is our so great salvation. The New Testament generally, my overarching statement is, is written to believers. See what I mean? It's not written as a tract. You're the tract. Paul says, you're our letter written on tablets of the human heart. You, you are the tract, and we can make tracts, and that's fine. But, but this idea that, that, um, that the, the, you're supposed to read First John in order to become a Christian, no, you're supposed to read First John so that you will walk as a Christian. It's the Christian life, and the obligations placed in this, in this book are on every one of us. And there are many imperatives in First John. He tells you if we confess our sins, that's a conditional yeah, it's an option. It's a promise. You should probably do that in First John one nine. But as we go forward, so many of the of the so much of the book are the obligations that God has placed on us. And there's one word that kind of summarizes the obligation John has in mind. One word that he says we're responsible for, and we've already seen that it is the fruit of the spirit. It's something the spirit bears in you, and it's also something you're supposed to supply. That one word. That sort of is the litmus test of whether I'm walking with God. Anybody know what that word is? It is love. It is Christian love. That is the commandment. 
We saw it as the correlation, I think, number three last time. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And then he said, if you have love as a noun, he said it as a verb and as a noun, the, the topic is, are you loving in the power that God has supplied and commanded? Well, if you want to watch what the New Testament says about that, you've got to go to the concordance. And here's a little snapshot of what the concordance does on the topic of love. The word as a verb is agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O. And the, verb, and the word as a noun, which is the same meaning, it's just used as a noun in a sentence, is agape. And they're not two different meanings because one's a verb, one's a noun. One is the doing of it and one is the thing that is done. It's both, in both cases, the way we understand from John 3.16, that love that says, what does God want for the other person? I choose to act on it without regard to myself. I choose selflessly to concern myself about your best from God's perspective. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now what shows up in the concordance search on love? What happens when you do that? You get two outliers, you get two places that say, well, this would be a place to study that topic. And you can see, maybe your, your eyes can squint out or you can count to four. The fourth one is the Gospel of John on the chart behind me. And the other long one that's five from the back, from the end, is First John, the epistle of First John. And what's really shocking to me about this picture is that John has 21 chapters of long narrative about Jesus. I mean, was it John 8, 58? 58 verses by the time he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to kill him, right? The crowd goes crazy because Jesus identifies himself as God, Yahweh. In other words, the gospel of John's long. The epistle of 1 John is short. Five short little devastating chapters that tear you down about your self-righteousness and build you up about your responsibility and the power of the Spirit to walk in love as God has commanded. It separates us from the world and all its distractions and says we have marching orders. And we, to be a benefit to those lost that are the world, we have to be separate from it. And that's First John, do not love the world or the things in the world. What I'm saying is that the density of the concept of love is so great in First John, the short epistle. He, has, he talks about the word as much in that short epistle as he does in the whole gospel of John which isn't surprising since he's teaching topically when you get to 1 John. And I, I'm kind of squinting out. I think it's 46 times in the 1 John and 40, 44 times in the Gospel of John, those two words. Again, this is a composite search of both agape and agapao, the verb and the noun. So what's my point in bringing that to your attention? Well, if you turn to 1 John chapter 1, you might be surprised after looking at this chart, 46 times he uses the words for love, that in 1 John 1, you don't see the word love anywhere. He doesn't talk about love. In the prologue, in the, in the setup for what we're talking about, he talks about having fellowship with God and walking in the light and not lying against the truth and saying you have no sin when you do have sin, saying you haven't sinned when you have sin. Tell the truth if we confess our sins. That's 1 John 1. It is not until... Uh, on down into chapter 2, that he gets to the topic of what it is to walk in fellowship with God according to the commands that we've received. By this, chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this, we come to know that we have, we, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
A new commandment I give to you, John records in John 13, 34, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. Love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He says the word for love four times in two verses. Just to be sure, Jesus does to his disciples, just to be sure that they get it. So what you're trying to say, Lord is uh, you're supposed to love each other. Okay, I thought that's what you are going to say. It's actually central to every step we take as believers. A couple of things have to fall out of this. For this to be true, the one another he's talking about in John 13 are other believers in context. We can extrapolate that with John 3.16 and other places to all people. But in John 13, he's talking about each other. Let's start there. Where we're in the same household, and that's hard to love one another because we know each other. We know what you did, and you know what we did, and man, we just are never going to be able to hang out. Isn't it interesting that we're able to work with people that are strangers better? They're able to work with people in our own household. We all know this in business. It's better to do professional business activities with people that you do not have a personal relationship with uh, like in a household where you've really, you really know it's the person, it's easier to deal in a professional environment. Professional, right? Professional means we're not dealing with emotions. We're not dealing with baggage. We're, not, we're just putting the, the, this is the mission. We're all focused on the thing we're doing. This is how business gets done. Why? Because of trouble. And when trouble happens, we're not doing business with that person anymore. That person has demonstrated something that we should have known from the start that they're on this side of Genesis 3, that this person's a fallen, sinful, broken person. They are capable of wickedness. Now we have wickedness. And this is how life is. Life is a series of do you forgive and do you deal and can you get along and bear along with someone who's failed? And can they recover? Can they repent? Can they say, I I was this way, but I choose a better way? And, uh, and in business, I don't have time for all that. We need to get the, you know, the best product at the best price. And let's just don't have all this humanity. But Jesus says in the household, you're to love one another self-sacrificially as Jesus has loved us. And John is going to spend most of his epistle emphasizing this new command that Jesus gives in 1 John, or in John chapter 13. John, the apostle of Jesus, is going to emphasize this command. I believe that what we have in these words about keeping his commandments so that we know we've come to know him, this is your spiritual life. This is walking in the light. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Don't shy away from that word. Don't say that must be the law and that's we're under grace. Don't be a foolish theologian. Take it as the balm that it is, that you know what God wants from you. So your life is organized. Your resources are prioritized. I'm supposed to love. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been matured or perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The being in him for John in 1 John chapter 2, I dogmatically assert, is the fellowship that you have in walking by the spirit, walking, abiding in him, John 15, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, uh, 5, 18. This is the spiritual life that he's talking about. 
The one who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the same manner Jesus walked. Do you have any commands in Scripture about walking as Jesus walked? Do you know any such commands? Ephesians 4 begins one, walk worthy of your calling. And Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is very explicit. Walk in love as beloved children. Be imitators of God and so walk in love as beloved children just as your Savior um, is your example. That is a paraphrase of Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It's all over the scriptures that we would copy our Savior. The theologian who can't deal with the exegesis of the passage is going to do more damage than good with his propositions. The passage is clear that you believers need to walk according to God's commandments. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. What is the the old commandment from the beginning? It's from the beginning of this Christian life that we started the upper room message where Jesus is launching the church age before the night, the night before he was crucified. That's the beginning he's talking about when Jesus laid this on us, this new commandment. And it was a long time ago when John writes 1 John because he writes later toward the end of the first century. So the, uh, let's say that the upper room, I think I take as a 33-year date for the upper room discourse. And I think that uh, John is writing somewhere between 80s and 90s. So we're 50 years of church history since this has happened, since, since this commandment was given. And that's why he says it was from the beginning. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's a new commandment because when Jesus gave it, it was an advance on what God had told Israel. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, but this new thing, love one another as I've loved you, is an advance on that. It goes beyond take care of your partner, your buddy, your neighbor, like you take care of yourself. It's disregard yourself and your concern for someone else. And that's what this new commandment entails. Beloved, this is your spiritual life. You can't do this on your own. We don't have it in us. We need the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. But sure as you can't produce it on your own, you are responsible to choose it. So supply love, says 2 Peter 1. So this obligation he lays on you, this is exactly what we need to hear. This is exactly what we need to know as believers. It's like you are a very highly developed athlete and you're receiving instruction from a coach or trainer who is taking you to the next level based on what you have in you, based on the potential that he sees and knows. And it's a great honor that he's laying this heavy weight on us. I don't want to be a liar and say I've come to know God when I haven't because I'm not loving as he commands me to. What do you know about God? Don't know what he looks like. Even Moses couldn't see the front of God. He got to see the the behind, the back end as God walked away. The fading glory came off of Moses because he saw God from behind. We don't get to see Jesus face to face until it's his time and that is coming for us. So here and now we're walking by faith, not by sight. What do you know of God? We know what he expects. What What a magnificent group we would be. What a phenomenal congregation of saints we would have. What a household would be your household or my household if we loved self-sacrificially and didn't think that's mine first before we thought I'm his. I'm his and the moment by moment stewardship I have is how I treat others for his sake.
The one who says he is in, his, in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. I'll tell you what I think that means theologically. I think what that means is you believers who walk in darkness and sin and say, no, I'm having fellowship with God. You're not. You're still walking in darkness. The Apostle Paul equates the functions of babies in Christ with carnal believers, with unbelievers. And you're acting like an infant. There's no growth. Maybe your problem with growth is that you're not choosing to love as Christ has commanded, if indeed you're having a problem. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The, the horror of Christian carnality, I believe, is being described here. Again, he's not telling you that you haven't sufficiently believed in Christ if you're not choosing to love and you're walking without love. He's telling you that you believers in Christ are responsible to walk in love. And the command is an opportunity for your volition. Every command is an opportunity for you to choose to obey. I'm writing to you little children. Now let's keep track of this. It's very interesting how he structures this. Little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who's been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. His audience is believers. He just told them that if they walk in darkness, they're stumbling around the darkness even now. But then he says, I'm talking to believers. The idea that this is some sort of evangelistic uh, discourse showing you your sin. No, this is telling believers that your sin patterns stop you from walking with God as he wants you to. And you need to stop ignoring the command to love self-sacrificially. We all need to stop ignoring this command. And now we need to talk about sins of omission. There is the boss or your dad telling you, don't bring the water hose into your bedroom and then turn it on and water and hose down the carpet because you like the way it looks when the carpet is soaked with water two inches deep in the bedroom. And your dad gives you that prohibition and you know the right answer is not to do that. I learned to be absurd in my illustrations in, first, uh, in Proverbs chapter 1. But just as sure as dad said, don't bring the water hose into your bedroom and turn it on so you can get two inches deep of water in your bedroom, kill the carpet. Dad also said, clean your room. Dad also said, clean your room. Don't put the water hose in the room and clean your room. And we are all running around like I am not watering my my carpet. The Lord said not to do that. And I do not do that thing that he said not to do. And we think that's spirituality. But see, dad didn't just say, don't destroy my property. He said, improve it. Do something. Go clean your room. Go build something here. It's a command that is an affirmative that you're commanded to do. And we think sin is when we do the thing God said not to do. But I think sin is when we disobey God. And ignoring, (laughs) ignoring what God told me to do is just, in my view, is just as arrogant and rebellious as doing the same thing he said not to do. It's sins of commission, sins of omission. God commands you so many different times to love your brother, and now you have to choose whether or not you'll obey it. And this doesn't just mean in the household, but it certainly does include the household. So I had little children, fathers, and young men, all of these believers who've overcome the evil one. I've written to you children, 
Verse 13, because you know the Father. I've written to you fathers. You know him who's been from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Twice now he's done children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. He keeps doing this cyclical thing. John does this with all the, everything he writes. He's always working thematic cycles. And that's how John writes. And it's, that's one of the reasons it's so rich. And another reason why it's so challenging to outline him. But then to these young men, he's going to launch on the challenge to young people. I've got a giant paragraph break in my Bible, and it's got a little, uh, a little black heading, uh, a little bolded heading. It says, do not love the world. Like that's where the sermon starts or something. That's not where the sermon starts. This is the little sub-sermon that he has for the young men who are strong and the word of God abides in them. They're believers, but they have a responsibility regarding love. And in this case, it's to love God and not love the world. And you can't do both. You've got to pick one. And that's what he does here in this little mini-sermon. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What that means is, if you love the world, then you don't love God. If you love God, then you can't love the world. And what we're talking about is Satan's system of deception and distraction that takes you away from loving God. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that little mini sermon to the young men is over. And what does he say in the next verse? Children, because he's working the cycle. Children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men. He does the cycle again in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour, and they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown they were not of us. This verse will be used by pastors that mean well in some cases, but don't understand to say if people leave the church, then they're not of us. This is actually what Paul's talking about in Acts 20 about elders among the Ephesians. Savage wolves from their own ranks will arise and not spare the sheep. This is, what, this is actually the problem of false teachers that, that John is addressing. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, and I've not written to you because you did not, not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If you heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. So he's moved from this heavy responsibility of loving one another to rejecting the love of the world in favor of loving God to the concept of the first things first, the first relationship. It's like when, um, when Jesus rebukes the Ephesian church in Revelation 3 because they've lost their first love. They're doctrinally sound, but they're not loving their God. They don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul. And so they have doctrinal convictions and they're carrying them out, but they don't love God. And so the first thing is not that you love one another. In 1 John 1, it's fellowship with God. And as a consequence, keep his command to love one another. And now he's cycling back and saying, remember, it's about first things. It's abiding in Christ. It's abiding in your relationship. And he's going to talk about love again. 
This is the promise which he's made, he himself made to us, eternal life. And these things I've written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just it is as, as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, this will be done. People will say, see, we don't need teachers because it says you don't need anyone to teach you, which makes you wonder why John is writing to them because he's teaching them as he writes. So that can't mean that we don't have teachers since one of the spiritual gifts is teaching. What it does mean is that you have a personal relationship with God and you know these things because of your walk with him, because of his work in you. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. This is the worst possible response to the appearance of our Savior is that you're shrinking away from him in shame. Diving at his feet is the answer, is what you want to do. He's here, and I've waited so long, and I'm looking forward to this, and now I get to have what I've always waited for. Don't be the person that has been lagging and wasting your life and serving yourself so that when the one who has a judgment on your life as a believer comes to bring that judgment, you shrink back in shame. There's going to be plenty of of company with you if you're going to be in that crowd. I don't want to be with those people. I better stand opposed to whatever would get me in that group that's shrinking back in shame at his appearing. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that he would, we would be called children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we would be called the children of God. And such are we. Such we are for this reason the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Back to loving the world and the world not knowing. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared as to yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he's pure. So we're looking for the resurrection. We will be like him. We'll see him and we'll be like he is because we see him. And that's our destiny. So right now we purify ourselves in his pattern. Right now, we don't see him, and we're not like he is in our glory, in our, in our glorified state. But right now, empowered by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, we are purifying ourselves, for he's pure. We are walking as imitators of him. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and, this, and sin is lawlessness. And in context, um, I'm, I'm growing to believe that the sin he's talking about is disobeying his commandment as in the, um, what we've already been discussing, where you're not abiding in him by keeping his commandment, which would be to love. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there's no sin. No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure. But that's Galatians 5.22, or 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't commit personal sin abiding in Christ. So if you sin, does this mean you don't have eternal life or you don't have Christ or you're not positionally in Christ? No, your positional sanctification is settled, but you're not walking with him. It's carnality. It's the, it's the failure of the, of the Christian life. Little children, make, no, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he's righteous. Well, this is a higher level than I'm capable of because it's God's righteousness we're talking about. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who's born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Okay, do believers commit personal sins? Yes. 
Does it mean that they won't go on continually practicing personal sin? I don't think that's what it means, but that's how people have tried to interpret this. What I think this means is that the new you in Christ doesn't commit personal sin. It's sin operating in you. It's the old. And that's, that's the distinction he's made. He's talking about your new nature, and he's calling us to abide in it, to walk in it. And so if you're walking in personal sin, understand you're functioning like an unbeliever. It's a, it's a functional spiritual death. It's a repudiation of the gospel in your life, and we should say no. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Why? In verse 11, does it go back to the message we had from the beginning that we love one another after saying no one who practices sin is born of God or, or however he says that? Why does he go back to loving one another? Because to John, it's all one package. You have God and relationship and fellowship with God that's in the light and righteousness that issues forth in the character of Christ and loving one another self-sacrificially because if I love him, I obey his command and that's what he commanded me. He gave me his Holy Spirit so I'm empowered to do it. And so now I have this relationship. We've got false teachers. You've got the world. You've got the problems that are opposed to that. And now we're going to talk about back to your relationship with God and fellowship and walking with him. And here's the nature of the new birth that you don't commit personal sin in the new nature. You commit personal sin in your old nature. And, you, and we're struggling with that. And guess what? Guess what? Abide in him. Abide in him. And abiding in him is keeping his commands. And his great commandment is love one another. John is, he is on a Ferris wheel of these topics. And it's a very effective way of teaching because I'm reminded to have fellowship with God. I'm reminded to disregard the world and the false teaching. I'm reminded that if I love God, I'm going to keep his commandment to love one another. Do not be surprised. Let's see. Um, we had verse 11. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that you would love one another. Not as Cain, who was the, of the evil one and slew his brother, nor and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now I've got the theme of loving one another and the world sewn together. Remember, don't love the world or the things in the world. See what I mean? So it's, it's very tightly connected, this, what you reject and what you accept. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Okay, that's a very challenging verse. It makes me think that if I'm not loving my brother, that I'm not really a believer. And that, that reasoning, that thought process that I haven't trusted in Christ and been justified and declared righteous by grace through faith, if I don't love my brother, makes us have this theology of inevitable Christian performance if you're a believer in Christ. But I don't think that's what that verse means. I think it means that if you're walking in a functional spiritual death, then you're not you're not going to love your brother. You're not equipped by the Spirit to love your brother. You're not walking with God. What he's talking about in context to believers is walking in the light, and that's having the life. That's enjoying your eternal life. That's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not neglecting our so great salvation. I'm not questioning. John isn't questioning whether you're a believer. He's questioning whether you're believing. He's not questioning whether you have the life. He's questioning whether you're living it. And the measure, the metric in this passage is what? Whether you love your brother, as Christ has loved you. That's power. That's a powerful challenge. And it really removes this passivity, this passive Christian life theory. It also removes the idea that if I'm a true believer, then God's just going to miraculously make me serve. 
It puts the responsibility where it belongs. Be in the word, beloved. Abide in Christ so that you know what he said, so you can do what he said. Rely on his spirit to give you the power to do what you're choosing to do. But you and I have to step out on faith and love as Christ has commanded us. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for this brief moment we've had to think about some of the teeth in the spiritual life, that we are given wonderful capability and wonderful privilege because you have incredible responsibility we'll never fulfill on our own. Thank you for the privilege to worship you and praise you this way today to proclaim your son's death and for the wisdom you've given us to assemble together. And Father, we need wisdom. We crave it. We ask that you'd make us successful as we go forward in loving and living the spiritual life, loving your son, so obeying his command to love. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.